This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, May 27th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court has weighed in, sort of, in suits claiming that when online platforms use algorithms to serve content, that they're effectively giving up federal legal protections. Cato's Will Duffield and Jennifer Huddleston discuss the cases and what is next at the high court. This case, at least from the outside looking in, from my noob's perspective, was about uh, essentially the degrees separation between uh, these various platforms and their uh, and radical behavior from the people who watch videos or may watch some videos on the platform and to what extent the platform could be held responsible for the decisions that some people make to be radicalized based upon what they were recommended by an algorithm on the sites like YouTube or Twitter. Is that, a, is that basically what what the court was addressing or was it something a little different? Yes. In Gonzalez v. Google, the central issue was whether or not Section 230 protected platforms' algorithmic recommendation of content or if in relying on algorithms to recommend it, the content became the platform's own. And so there's a real concern here that in exposing platforms to liability for algorithmic recommendation or curation of any kind, it would end up suppressing all sorts of controversial or borderline speech from algorithmic feeds, which everyone uses to find the sorts of content they'd like to sort through the mass of online speech. And so the case had the potential with this theory of harm, uh, this focus on algorithms, to really upend how the internet works today. Thankfully, it didn't go that way. And we could see that it was, from the very beginning, considered to be a particularly important case. Beyond just the impact on algorithms, this is one of the first times that the Supreme Court had directly had a case that presented a question on Section 230. This law that has been in the news a lot recently, certainly been a kind of key point of contention on both the left and the right. And so there was a lot of particular interest with regards to what the court might say now over 20 years after Section 230's initial enactment about how the law plays out in our kind of current internet age. Okay. And what were your concerns going into it? I know that that the, the Supreme Court still has not really squarely, even after this case, has not squarely addressed uh, the questions surrounding Section 230. But what were your concerns going in? As Will mentioned, there were a lot of concerns about the way this could impact the use of algorithms online. And algorithms at times have become a bit of this boogeyman, this kind of scary thing of what's going on and what's the secret sauce. But the reality is algorithms are a big part of what makes the internet an enjoyable experience for the average user. It helps it helps platforms engage in removing problematic content. It helps connect users with content that they may be interested in. And this isn't just about social media sites like YouTube and Twitter that were at issue in this case. It's also about other user-generated content sites, things like Wikipedia, things like um, recommendations for reading another article, things like recommendations um, based on, on previous activity. 
Um, we saw, for example, Reddit was very active in discussing how this would be pot- potentially particularly problematic for its volunteer content moderators. So there was a real chance that this could go to the internet experience that many of us enjoy and really raise these questions about how the internet could change in terms of user-generated content. After oral argument, it seemed clear that the Supreme Court appreciated most of these concerns, that they were unlikely to throw algorithmic curation out the window entirely. But I was still very concerned about an errant footnote or uh, dissent, an aspect of the decision that would undermine uh, Section 230 or simply shake up uh, current sort of longstanding lower court precedent that has worked for us well so far. In the decision we got, in the way the court ended up addressing this, they really took the best possible option and rendered almost no decision at all. So there was very little room for the devil in the details, the bad footnote, because they issued a three-page per curiam opinion altogether, unsigned, shunting the issue entirely over to a case called Twitter v. Tamna. And so they avoided talking about Section 230 and didn't disturb it in the process. So this was a narrow, nine-nothing decision authored by Clarence Thomas, and it, in a sense, is saying, we don't have to address this, so we're not going to. Uh, but it does tee up some cases down the road. Um, yeah, so the the Gonzalez decision isn't even signed by anyone. It, it may have been written by Thomas, but um, it's just from the court. Twitter v. Tamna was a related case about platforms underlying liability under the Anti-Terror Act. In both Gonzalez and Twitter, plaintiffs were suing platforms for something in this case, carrying terrorist content, alleging that it aided and abetted these terrorist groups, ISIS here. And while platforms raise the 230 defense against their liability, in Twitter v. Tamna, the court took up the underlying ATA claim. And Thomas authored, I think, a, a valuable decision that while not about 230 itself, he's just interpreting the ATA, it reads very much in line with the ethos that undergirds Section 230, but from a kind of common law perspective. He engages the ATA's aid and abet. He says, what does that mean? He goes to the traditional common law precedent, a case called Halberstam v. Welch, where a woman worked as a kind of live-in accountant for a criminal, a, a burglar who'd steal jewelry, and she'd help him to sell it off. This is the classic conception of aid and abet. And he looked at what platforms very impersonally do with user content, their default openness. And he said, this doesn't look like aiding and abetting. Um, this, this underlying claim under the ATA is unsound. And so in, in Twitter v. Tamna, Twitter doesn't have the underlying ATA liability. And in Gonzalez, it's remanded with these claims really in question. Um, it's it's unlikely that, that they hold any water given uh, the Twitter v. Tamna ruling. Okay, Jennifer, uh, what is next at the court? Obviously, there's always the follow-on case. What's coming up next? So this does not 
solve all of the the kind of questions about what the court might say about online content moderation. I'd also like to go to Will's point about how the court kind of avoided the Section 230 question. And there's some question of what that means for the future of the Section 230 debate. For example, Senator Blumenthal has already tweeted that, okay, the court punted on Section 230, so it's time for Congress to consider action. So we may see a kind of resurgence of congressional debate about Section 230 in the coming months. The other thing that we're expecting to see in the coming months is the Supreme Court uh, is likely to next term consider two cases involving NetChoice and CCIA, both technology company trade associations, suing the states of Florida and Texas over their online content moderation state laws. Now, notably, unlike the Twitter and Google cases that we saw this term, these cases are really First Amendment cases as opposed to Section 230 cases. So we're going to see some real questions about the role of government in terms of their ability, if any, to create transparency requirements and online content moderation requirements on these companies. Uh, we currently have a, a circuit split between the 5th and 11th Circuit involving these cases. So the expectation is that next term we'll see the Supreme Court considering a somewhat similar topic with regards to how the law interacts with online content moderation. A lot of commenters have tried to read the tea leaves of the Tamna decision to try to figure out what the court might do in these this this First Amendment context, but still about platforms. And some have seen seen uh, ill portents in in some of Thomas's language, but I frankly haven't, and I, I've taken issue with some of the the readings of his discussions of platforms, which I think are worth noting as we move towards net choice. Uh, he speaks about platforms' lack of upload filters. It's a reason that they aren't uh, shouldn't face liability. Um, indeed, there is not even reason to think that defendants have carefully screened any content before allowing users to upload it. And some of them read that to mean that he's supportive or open to common carriage requirements. Uh, well, if they aren't aren't screening anything, that's the reason that they they receive this protection. But again, this is merely at upload, and Thomas is clear about that here. He uses some simplistic analogies, but in the name of in a clear way. And I I wouldn't read danger into this Tamna decision the way some have. We'll we'll cross this um, net choice bridge when we come to it. I agree with Will. I think there's very little that can be read into this decision with regards to any particular justices thinking um, on the net choice cases. That being said, I think one of the uh, things that was very favorable in the oral arguments was that we saw some real intellectual humility from the judges in terms of recognizing that, quote, they are not the nine greatest internet experts and asking some really difficult questions about what potential changes would mean for the future of speech online and for user-generated content. So I think one really good takeaway as, as we head towards the net choice cases is that the judges are very aware of the consequences that changes could have to free speech and the role of the internet in um, spreading free expression. 
Will Duffield is a Cato Institute policy analyst. Jennifer Huddleston is a Cato Research Fellow. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.